Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today is a name most everyone will recognize, Mr. Sheffield Nelson. Born in the Arkansas Delta, Mr. Nelson has outfoxed and outworked his meager and humble beginnings to become a successful, community-minded businessman, politician, attorney at law, and activist. Smart, good-looking, and studious in school, the young Sheffield studied engineering, math, ran track, and was president of the student body at State Teachers College, now the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. Later, Mr. Nelson would become Counselor Nelson when he received his law degree from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. But Counselor Nelson's rise to success is far from a straight and mundane storyline. At just 32 years of age, Nelson became the CEO of Arkla Gas, known today as Centerpoint Energy. After his 20-plus years at Arkla, Nelson went on to run for the governorship of Arkansas, first against Governor Bill Clinton and next against incumbent Jim Guy Tucker. Nelson says, and I quote, My only venture into politics was a run for the governor. It was the only office I ever wanted and the only one I'd ever run for. Nelson's productive work years in power and politics align with some of the most famous years in Arkansas history because his smart, handsome, and charismatic peers were Bill Clinton, Jim Guy Tucker, David Pryor, Tommy Robinson, Ray Thornton, nephew of Wood Stevens, and yes, Dallas Cowboy owner Jerry Jones. Though never elected to office, Mr. Nelson did serve Arkansas. He was on the United States Commission on Civil Rights, the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, and more recently, the co-chair to the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees, and has lobbied more than once for a severance tax increase on natural gas. In 1987, Mr. Sheffield Nelson brought the Junior Achievement Organization to Arkansas and for the last 30-plus years has been sharing his story of success, a poor, maybe I got this right, fatherless boy, almost fatherless boy, almost from the Arkansas Delta, makes good. That's his story. A poor, fatherless boy from the Arkansas Delta makes good. That's going to be the title of your book. In hopes for inspiring the next generation of Arkansans to pursue careers in business and public service. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the smart utility executive, political leader, attorney, and activist, Mr. Sheffield Nelson. Gary, thank you for that very generous uh, introduction. It got I appreciate long- it very much. You're welcome. It got longer than I wanted it to <laughs> well, it was nice. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to carry that around with me for whoever introduced me from now on. They could choose that. That was very, very nice. You're welcome. Uh, did I get everything right? You got everything right. Uh, do you consider yourself an activist? I can be an activist for the right causes. Uh, I don't go out and look for things. I do try to do things that may uh, I may be considered an activist when I think they'll be good for the state of Arkansas and good for the people here. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I've taken on some causes that were that type, and I think that they 
in some cases, pay dividends for the people. I said in the introduction, fatherless. I looked at you to make sure I was okay if I said that. Because I read in your bio that you were 16 years old when your dad left and said, all right, Sheffield, you're in charge of your mother and two sisters. Is that true? Pretty well, except he didn't say anything. He just left. Uh, and yes, it was true. You want to borrow my couch to lie down on? <laughs> no, no, no. Are you over it? <laughs> no, no, it didn't bother me. I mean, it was part of life, and uh, actually it made our lives better. Sad and ashamed that it had to happen that way. He was a, an itinerant worker, so we never really had a what? An itinerant worker. He, What's that mean? He drove, well, he, in his case, he drove a dozer, a bulldozer, mm. uh, but he had to go from place to place to get work. He never had a steady job. So it was really just kind of tough all the time that he was with our family. So we actually... Um, had hit a point in life and fared better once he decided to take off and, and leave us. And I hate to say that, but that's just the way it occurred, and it, it turned out uh, for the better. Did you ever see him again? Never saw him again until uh, the day of his funeral. That was it. Oh, you went to his funeral? I did. How old was he when he died? Uh, he had to be about 64, 65. Well, he did pretty good. Yeah. Um, so without all of that strife, do you think you'd be the person you are kind of today? I really don't. I think being extremely poor and growing up in the Delta uh, was a good combination to help me grow and help me mold myself and become a better person and a, a perhaps a stronger person than I would have been otherwise. I know it gave me a great work ethic. I started working at about 10 or 11 years old, picking cotton. Now, you know, and I lived in Brinkley, Clarendon, West Helena, and Wynn. All of those are in the Delta, and all of them had cotton fields around them. And so I, that's how, where I started learning to work. And then when I got to Brinkley, I was able to get uh, a job with a, a great Italian guy there uh, by the name of Johnny Therese, who I worked for from that time. Uh, that would have been my sophomore year of high school until I went on to college, and I'd still come back and work for him some. I'm but amazed. He got, he got the work ethic. I'm amazed how many successful people I've interviewed have picked cotton. It was part of the background then. and I had a lot of friends that I picked with, a lot of them just good old country boys. A lot of them uh, had farms, and uh, that was a way of life. It was before cotton, uh, all the machinery that they use now, and it was I chopped cotton and and uh, then picked cotton. So I did both, and they helped me a lot in terms of just money mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Am I right in saying that children are not allowed to work till they're fourteen? I mean, would you have been? Was that? Would there been some laws you would be breaking today if we child labor laws if you worked at twelve today? Uh, there may have been. I, I mean, there may be now, but there was certainly nothing then. In nothing. Fact, I know there was nothing. No, it was all encouragement back then. They mm. were trying to get workers. That Do you think that hurts kids today? I mean, you don't get to go to work till you're sixteen years old, or? I think if you had the right work environment and the guaranteed type of work. It could be a great asset to them. It could help them build themselves. Mm-hmm. If they got into the wrong environment too early where they didn't or weren't uh, educated enough or grown enough mm-hmm. to make right decisions, it could be bad. But, yes, I think working at an early age is great. And, you know, they can still do things like uh, be a paper boy, which many of them did up through the years. Of course, you've had You that. can't do that anymore. You've had that change now. <laughs> no, my husband but, did that. Yeah, yeah everybody did I know, that. Many of my friends did it. I mean, we all talk about what we did. Well, that's what many of them did early. My son, who's now 26, when he was 16 and could drive, he got a job as a busboy at a restaurant. And I said, "You, ab- having worked in a restaurant myself, I said, you absolutely cannot work in a restaurant. I know what goes on out in the back behind the restaurant. You cannot work there. So the next thing you know, he's he got a job. He turned out fine. He did turn out <laughs> fine. But, you know, all you got to do if you want your kids to work is tell them they can't. And they'll go do it. Then. But it, it gave him a job, and I bet it helped him turn out the way he is today. He's got a great work ethic. You're exactly right. All right, let's talk about you going to college. So you got a scholarship to college to to run track. 
they had work scholarships back at that time. So I got a job that one of the plum jobs was in the student union where you work behind the counter, the soda counter. Uh, so I got to do that uh, for three years. And then I went to work uh, doing some stuff for the state of Arkansas at night my senior year. But, but for three years, I got to work. And that's what really enabled me to become president of the student body and all that because I got to know everybody in the student body uh, working there every day. So I, it helped me immensely. It helped me pay for my education. It, it was one of the better jobs you could have. And as long as all of us in that student center at that time, all of us ran track or did something in track. What did your mother do for a living after your father left? My mother uh, counted more on my older sister and me uh, mm-hmm. for a living because she didn't. Uh, she did so you not, were sending money back to your mother? Yeah, of course. And my older sister really did. She lived with her and, and really helped her through the trying times of life. So we were fortunate to be able. And then my other sisters got old enough. We all contributed and made sure that our mother didn't hurt for anything uh, the rest of her life. She didn't She didn't live but till about 66, 67. So. Mm-hmm. You uh, are not like your father because you have been married to the same woman since junior. You've been with the same woman since junior high or high school. Or when did you meet your wife? I started dating her when she was a junior in high school and I was a senior. And we've been married for 58 years. It's just charming, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, I'm not going to be like my dad. Well, I think a lot goes into that. It's certainly a two-way street. She had to give a lot, and I had to give a lot, but that's what goes into a marriage that lasts that long. We've been very blessed and very fortunate. Well, this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with the hardworking businessman, politician, attorney, and activist, Mr. Sheffield Nelson. In this next segment, we're going to talk about uh him being the CEO of Arc Legas, a 500, uh, Fortune 500 company at the age of 32 years old. We're going to find out that story when we come back. We'll be right back. Here's a message from Dreamland Ballroom inside Flag and Banner, downtown Little Rock. In celebration of Juneteenth, 2020, we're embracing the historically black college and university experience, history, and relevance with a program called Unburied Truths. It's the next installment in this series by social historian Ed Davis. Social distancing practices will be in place at 800 West 9th Street. That's the location of Flag and Banner and, of course, the Dreamland Ballroom. To promote healthy practices, this lecture at 5 p.m. June 19th is going to be held outside the building. Appropriately spaced seating will be available. Attendees are encouraged to bring some refreshments or your own seating if you'd like. And please wear face masks. For more information on the soul of higher education, the Unburied Truth, HBCUs. Please go to dreamlandballroom.org slash unburiedtruths. The date for the event, June 19th, 5 to 7 p.m. You're listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Want to keep up with flag etiquette? When to fly your flag? When to lower it to half staff? Sign up for free email notifications at flagandbanner.com. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags. The flagandbanner.com. Back to you, Carrie. You're listening to Up in Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the smart and esteemed politician, counsel, and counselor, Mr. Sheffield Nelson. Before the break, we talked about you growing up in the Delta. We talked about your father leaving when you were 16. We talked about you going to college at what is now uh, University uh, University of Central Arkansas. Right. Yeah. Okay, got it. Uh, and then uh, now you're in college, you're the senior, you're the president of the student body, but you've also got a, somehow you got a job at ARCLA. How did that come about? 
Well, I actually got the job at Arklaw the day after I finished college. In fact, I drove from uh, Conway to Shreveport, Louisiana, where I was to spend my first year in a training program. So uh, I started to work for them immediately after graduating, and I stayed with them for 22 years. What did you start off as? started off as a, a management trainee, and then I got to pick the department I wanted to go into. I knew that Stevens was totally oriented towards sales. Uh, all of the management people were sales-minded. So I went into direct sales. I went into uh, uh, air conditioning sales. My first Is that job. door-to-door? Uh, no. Uh, believe it or not, you have a lot of calls, and particularly Arclaw did because of having a special type thing with the natural gas unit as opposed to electric. Gave you a lot to sell with, and uh, I just loved it. I hit in like a fish in water and uh, <laughs> moved up through the ranks real quickly because, again, Stevens liked it, and uh, he always watched the progress of salesmen and kept up with us, and I think that's what helped me more than anything else. You know, I... Uh didn't realize until i was getting ready for this show i don't know why i've never thought about this but all of our utility companies are privately owned i think a lot of people think that they are owned by the state or the city they act like they are if you want energy to come out and do something you can just forget it they they act like they're not they're so not customer service friendly that's why you think that they're run by the state You know, they're stockholder-owned. Stockholders own them, but the Public Service Commission oversees them. So if they're falling short, any of them falling short of doing what they're supposed to, Public Service Commission is one that Who oversees it. Comcast? That's the one I'm going to rat out. I don't. I think the City Board of Little Rock oversees them. They, I don't think they're under any uh, Public Service Commission type uh, uh, control at all. So, well, my service just drives me crazy. You, know, anyway. you hear a lot about that. Yeah, no, you do. You yeah. saw that woman, that uh, that nice old lady went in there and got frustrated in another state with a hammer and went in and reached across the counter and banged on the guy's keyboard with a hammer. She made national news. She was so frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so you moved up the ranks at, to sales manager, I guess. I did. And then to vice president, I guess. I did. And then to chairman of the board, I guess. Well, I moved to president and co-chief executive officer. We had a friend down in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, a guy by the name of Don Weir, who became chairman of the board. Uh, and, and co-CEO, I became president and co-CEO. Uh-huh. And then five years later, uh, or six years later, he retired, and I took all the titles at that point. But for all practical purposes, we had our own areas of the company to run. We got along great. Uh, we were best of friends, and it turned out well for everybody. Whit Stevens owned the gas company, the Stevens family. Um, and he decided to re- resign in 1973. That's right. Now, what he did, he owned a portion of it. He owned a big oh. portion. He owned a lot of stock. And he had been put on notice to sell some of that stock, as I remember, because his ownership was so great. And he decided to step out and uh, give up the uh, – he didn't give up his ownership. In fact, he ended up with as much stock as ever. But he did give up the presidency, and that's when I was picked at, at his direction. And, and uh, Don Weir was picked in his direction to become uh, the office holders we were. And why was he asked to resign? Because it was a conflict of interest because he was such a big stockholder? No, uh, it was a national thing, and I believe it had to do with the Securities Exchange Commission. I just think they said, and it was basically what you said, he owned too much stock to stay in a controlling position because he did a lot of oil and gas drilling where he sold the product to the company. He also was president and CEO and had total control over it. And I think they just made it where he needed to to, uh, go ahead and step out of that and, uh, and turn it over to somebody else. And then, um, so you're 32 years old. You're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Are you just thinking that 
I'm the best thing that ever happened? I mean, is your ego through the roof? I mean, what are you thinking at 82 years old? You're thinking you really better dig in and hold on because you knew it wasn't going to be easy. No, I didn't think my I didn't, my head didn't grow at all. I, I hit the ground running. We worked very hard. We and I worked together. Uh, we started doing some things that were good for the company uh, and therefore good for stockholders. Like and, what? And good for the customers. I'll tell you two or three examples. One, uh, I instituted no cutoff of customers during the winter. That had been a sore point with a lot of people. What do you mean? Well, extremely poor people simply can't pay their gas bills in the winter. Oh. And so I stopped that. And uh, we'd let them make it up over the spring and summer, and they'd be back uh, in decent shape by the following What's winter. Was that called balanced billing or something? Uh, it, it was sort about of. the same as balanced billing today. That, that was probably what substituted for ours. But ours was straight old, straight old not making them pay. Uh, but with the understanding of making them sign that they would pay. Uh, also, uh, I, I developed a, a concept called uh, replacement cost pricing. We never could get enough for the natural gas. Public service commissions wouldn't give it because I wouldn't go against residential customers. I wanted to stay off their backs. So I wanted to go with the large uh, industries. They first told us we couldn't do what we wanted to do, and they just gave us. Uh, and what did you want to do? Well, what I wanted to do is make the large industries start paying what they had to pay for an alternate fuel. In other words, we got to where we couldn't provide gas didn't have it so they didn't get anything from us so they were buying number two and number six fuel oil so i went to the to them first to the big industry i went to the big industries first and said if y'all will give me a chance and let us raise the price to what your going price is on fuel oil and do it in two or three steps we will spend every penny of that money looking for natural gas and we'll find you gas and start selling you gas again and we did that over about a two to three year time i had them back where they were getting all the gas they'd ever gotten we restored service to uh, energy, APNL at the time, uh, and it turned out beautiful for everyone. They backed me in my efforts, and I came back and, and did what we said we'd do. Is that what caused you and Whit Stevens to have the falling out? No. Because that's legendary. Well, it, it was a shame that it happened. And what what it really was was Whit wanted more for his gas than we could give him because he wasn't giving us anything extra. It was just, I want to get this for my gas. We couldn't do that, and we told him that. Don and I visited with him and his two or three main spokesmen several times, trying to keep it on a low key, uh-huh. trying to keep him happy. But it turned out you're either going to do it or you shouldn't be president of Arclaw, and Don, you shouldn't be chairman. And you're answering to a board. Answering to a board that he had formulated. It was all his board. Uh, so Don and I were the only two on there uh, that weren't picked by wit. But what happened is we, about that time, one or two of them died, one or two of them stepped off. Off the board. Uh, off the board. But they became followers of Don and me. They said, y'all are doing it right. You're getting good uh, reports from Public Service Commission. You're getting along well out there, and you're taking care of customers. We can't ask any more. Mm-hmm. So I, once I knew we had their backing, we just told Whit we couldn't do it, and that's when the explosion And Whit's going, I selected you for that position. That's right. But, uh, you know, I felt there were things being asked to do that I couldn't in good conscience do, and in theory at least, they could have gotten to the point of uh, being legally questionable. And I didn't want to be looking out from behind bars because I did something I shouldn't do. <laughs> and it was just, it was really that simple. Yeah. I wasn't going to do it. And, uh, and we, we took a hard position, but a, but a good position. And it was right for the people of the state of Arkansas and for the other customers we had. Is there anything that. you would have done different? I tried everything I could do back then. I'd do anything not to have had that blowing up. I did not want it. Don yeah. Weir didn't want it. But when you go as far down the path as you can, and they're still not giving you a reasonable possible solution, you just have to back away and go, no, I, I don't think, I can't think of a thing that I should have done differently. And I do think that I went overboard in trying to, to appease him because he was a good guy. He had done a lot for me, and he taught me a lot. I mean, yeah. He was a great salesman. And uh, I just hated it when it came to a, to a close that way. 
Um, and then your friend friendship with Jerry Jones began in college. No, I was. Uh, I did all my education uh, in Conway and Little Rock. Uh, oh, he and he's from Fayetteville. He's at Fayetteville. I didn't meet Jerry Jones until he was in the oil and gas business after he graduated. Mm. Uh, actually, I met him when he was in insurance business. He went into insurance with his dad, and they made a lot of money selling. Where's Jerry Jones from? Jerry's from Springfield, Missouri. Oh. And, but, but let me backtrack. That's okay. where his dad and all entered up, uh, ended up. But he actually started at Rose City over here in North Little Rock. That's what I thought. Yeah, he played football for North Little Rock and did everything here. So he was a Little Rock, Arkansas boy in North Little Rock. That's what I thought, yeah. yeah. But then Jerry came back and did the insurance thing, but I didn't really meet him well until he got in oil and gas. Because you're, you're an executive yeah. of and that. he would come talk to us about mm-hmm. buying gas from him or mm-hmm. about helping him drill, being mm-hmm. partners in drilling. I turned him over to the oil and gas people mm-hmm. out of Shreveport, and they worked deals with him. He was one of our best uh, friends in terms of helping us buy gas and, and find gas. And back at that time, uh, as uh, Paul Greenberg pointed out in an editorial that he wrote about all this, he said that we were doing exactly what every other co- company in the country was doing in trying to locate gas supplies and buy gas. Well, so was that, there a shortage of gas? There was a real shortage, a real. But then, and so gas became more expensive. Became more expensive and became more plentiful. And once gas became more plentiful, there was more gas being discovered. Then people didn't want to go into some of the contracts we'd gone into and trying to buy gas. But that was years later, a number of years later. Uh-huh. Uh, during the time we were buying, everybody else was competing with us. So we were having to compete in the marketplace and pay so, the dollars that we So had when you started, let me see if I get this right. When you started, gas was scarce. Right. And you would go out for long contracts at a fixed price or exactly. a year, how, a year anything long. Anything you had to do, anything you had to, to do. get that. Yeah, I'll go back to my point a minute ago. Uh-huh. When I came in, if you remember, I was telling you about us promising the industrial customers that we'd yeah. go out and drill if they would get us extra money so yeah. we could develop gas. We were trying to buy gas all that time, and they were losing gas. Our customers were every year; they were falling further. Was Arklas insolvent? No, no, no. We still have a big base in commercial. Uh, and your residential customers. And you had small industrials that used a lot of gas. We were m- missing out on the big industry mm-hmm. that could help the states the most mm-hmm. and that we could do the most for if we could just get uh, gas. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. So then it goes from you can't find gas and you're begging people to let you. You're, you were offering, I guess, to help find gas. To, anything, anything. Anything. Any deal our people could make, we would approve. Any deal that was reasonable. And they made some awfully good deals. And they made some tough deals. Tough mm-hmm. on us. Tough on the other people. And then gas became plentiful. That's right. And how does that change the market? Well, they changed the market because then you could get gas cheaper. So you didn't like being hung with those large, high-priced contracts. But we were hung with them. And oh. we had to deal with them. We, I we see. did not regret doing what we did. I see. Because everything we did enabled us to move forward as a company and, uh-huh. and develop. So, now, like on Jerry Jones, the one that uh-huh. the most complaint was about, people were totally wrong and never understood it. Jerry put $30 million on the table and said, if you'll drill these wells with me on a half-and-half half basis, we'll share the gas. And, and so, you said, I need the gas. Oh, we did in a minute. Of course, our gas people handled the deal. I didn't handle it with Jerry. But they came to me, and I said, absolutely, we'll settle. I said, we'll do the same with Stevens. They're talking about wanting us to up their prices. Uh-huh. Tell them, bring something to the table. Uh-huh. We'll make a deal with them. Never brought a thing to us like that. Because <gasps> they're still mad at you, baby. Yeah. Well, also, they didn't really want to give up anything. They loved their gas position. They had a lot of gas reserves. They talked to me about buying their company over at Fort Smith. Uh, we did a lot of things that could have turned out to be good for everybody, but they just got their noses out of joint to the point they thought uh, no need to deal with us, and they didn't. 
something I learned in getting ready for the show is that I think it was Stevens that used your pipelines, Arkless pipelines, to transport their natural gas to other states. Well, they tried to, and that's another thing that that was what broke the camel's back. We were already well, in a war with him over the gas of his gas and what we were paying him for it, and that we weren't going to raise it uh, for nothing. Mm-hmm. But then he said, well, I'm just going to make you carry gas for me from over here at Fort Smith over to Blytheville. Now, Blytheville was not on our system, uh, and he was mm-hmm. going to make us carry gas, and I told him we weren't going to do it. All that does is invite people to come onto your system and start making you transport their gas instead of your own gas. So I said, we'll take care of Blytheville when they need extra gas, and we did. During the winter, we would run a piece of pipeline over and feed gas into them and also at Mina to Queen, the same thing. But we were not going to carry another company's gas, let them run the price up through 2 or $3 in MCF, making a lot more than we were and using our, our capacity. I, I told him they couldn't, they could not make us do it, so I hope they'd back off. They tried to beat us. We went to public, I mean, we went to the legislature. We beat them hands down in the legislature. They understood we were trying to preserve gas for our customers and not, and not uh, utilizing our pipeline for others to make money. So then they talked about going to the public, to the public service commission and to the Federal Power Commission. We told them to go on. We were willing to fight it all the way to the FPC because we were right. Mm-hmm. As the law turned out, we were exactly right. Uh, they ended up backing off because they couldn't force us. We just, they thought we'd lower over and play dead and, and let them mm-hmm. do it. But the, let me tell you the real problem. It wasn't the taking care of one company. If you could have done it with one company. You had to do it for community. everybody. Yeah. You opened the door to everybody. And that's what would happen to us. I say that all the time to my employees. If I do that for you, i got to do it for everybody, that's and right. then we go belly up over here. That's just exactly right. Is it, is it common practice today that everybody shares gas lines and uses each other's gas lines, pipelines? Well, you always had some sharing of pipelines where you could drop off gas at one place or pick up gas at one place and make a, a, a fee for carrying it, but it didn't interfere with your business. Uh-huh. It enabled them to get uh, gas from point A to point B on their system. We, we got some companies to carry some gas for us at different times to some of our outlying areas. But it always was a workable situation that didn't hurt anybody. Now, How do you do that? You turn off like one pipe and turn another pipe on? It's I mean, essentially that. What they do is put in gas at one location and you cut it back at your location. And it's a transfer, swap uh-huh. out and all this. And yes, there's still some transfer. What happens to the people gas. on that pipeline when you cut it off? Not a thing. You don't cut it off. What you, you do just, is keep feeding other customers. That's just using part of it. Most uh-huh. pipelines had then and have now extra capacity. Ah, they got and, a couple of pipelines oh, in yeah, there. Extra, yeah, you. pipelines are extra large pipelines that carry a lot more gas. That are all in the same all track, the same in the same track. ditch. That's exactly right. Or, or close enough that they can feed over to one pipeline and carry it south, and then they'll feed you back up here and pay you back the gas or to pay you for transport. I'm learning so much. All right, so this must be how Jerry Jones got to buy the Dallas Cowboys because he got to, uh, in that when you were trying to, find people that would drill with you to find gas to meet the needs to get the industry the larger industrial customers he was part of the the team that helped to find extra gas well he did that a lot and he sold gas to other people he didn't have to sell to us so we didn't take everything that jerry had we got the gas line gas that was close to our system but he had drilling going on in California that we didn't have any interest in. How did he know where? How did he know where all that gas just was? Smart, smart, and put up the money. He had the courage to put up money. He just had to go. It's always and, the courage. Hey, isn't but it? Let, let me tell you, on ours, the way Jerry and Arclaw separated, it was after I'd gone. Mac McClarty was president. They had the chance to buy him out of his interest in Arclaw, or a price, and they dealt back and forth on the price forever. 
So they valued Jerry's gas, got it down to a level where it was affordable and reasonable, and Mac bought him out. So that's where he got the initial money to get in. So Mac McClarty replaced you. Did you appoint Mac McClarty? He was my choice. He was was my choice. choice. Was he on the board at the time? I got him on the board about two years before. And first of all, tell him I wanted him on the board. But in the last year, I was trying to sell him on following me because I knew he had the background to do a great job, which he did do. How long? uh Mac was there until Clinton went to the presidency and he took off to become his uh, chief of staff. How long so were you there? So he was there about six years, five, six years. How long were you there? I was there 22 years. Were I you just exhausted? for 12 years. Uh, no, I was so young. I wasn't, I wasn't very exhausted <laughs> yeah, you're right. at, at that stage. I, I found it challenging and, and a lot of fun. But, of course, there were times when you were tired and times when you were pushed to the wall. But uh, the deal with Jerry Jones was above board. It was looked at by everybody and his dog, and they all determined we didn't do a thing wrong. That, oh, was that's all, good. that was all people sitting around barking from the sideline, and you can imagine who some of those were. <laughs> and plus, jealousy. I wanted to hit a well someday in my life. Well, Doesn't everybody? Know, I, think that, I think there's one other thing to enter in. When we took over the gas company, it was about a 220 or $25 million company. We got these things going with uh, getting large industrial okay. gas customers back online. And up. We built that company into a billion-dollar company. And it was what when you took it about over? two hundred fifty million, two hundred twenty five. You about took it to a billion, wow. and we built it up, uh, and we did it mostly through large customers paying their fair share and buying the large quantities we made available. That's where we built the system and built the company. But I'm sure that hurt feelings because Arclaw had an unprecedented type growth and earnings and the things from Wall Street. They loved us, uh, loved our company, and loved the management team. Uh, so th- that paid dividends, and I- I'm sure that hurt some feelings. But the main thing—why would still, that hurt feelings? Well, paying you, dividends. Well, that was part of it, but also they'd sit there and say, "Well, why couldn't y'all do that?" Sheffield and Don Weir came in and did this, and they did the best they could under the circumstances. It just wasn't available at that time. But we hit it when we needed gas. We had the customers, and we got them involved, and that paid dividends—real yeah. dividends for everybody. Yeah. I like it. All right. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the hardworking businessman and very smart entrepreneur, I guess, executive for Arkla Gas, politician. So I guess you've stopped and you've become an attorney now. And somewhere in there, you decide that you're going to run for the governorship. So when we come back, we're going to talk about Sheffield's run in politics. Great. We'll be back after the break. Help celebrate Arkansas's birthday. Did you know that each year the Old State House Museum invites the public to celebrate the state's birthday? From now till June 15th, Flag and Banner is donating 5% of every purchase from the showroom floor to the Old State House Museum. Stop by, help celebrate Arkansas's 184th birthday. Flag and Banner, 800 West 9th Street, downtown Little Rock. And online, flagandbanner.com. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the smart and esteemed politician and counselor, Mr. Sheffield Nelson. First, we talked about Sheffield and how hardworking he was at growing up in the Delta and going to college at the uh, University of Central Arkansas. And then we talked about him becoming the CEO of Arkla Gas, a Fortune 500 company at the age of 32. People, wrap your mind around that. Gray, you're 31. 32. You're 32? I know. It's mind-blowing. Can you imagine? (laughs) No, I can't. (laughs) I can't either. But you have to realize, if you listened earlier in the show, that Sheffield became a man at 16 when his dad left. So his 32 is exponentially older, 
right? By a long shot. Yeah. <laughs> if everybody became a grown-up at 16 today, <laughs> you don't really become a grown-up till you're 30 years old. Sure. So anyway, now we're going to talk about the second part of his life. His, it's a whole new episode that's starting now. Uh, he's uh, Sheffield, you've retired from ARCLA as their youngest CEO. Your successor is Mac McClarty, who's five or six years before he goes off with President Clinton to be his chief of staff as uh and now you're in private law practice i guess what's the name of the firm did you have your own firm or did you join a firm i joined house wallace and jewel and they added my name to it it became house wallace nelson and jewel and what i did in getting that law degree i did that the first three years i was back in little rock after being in shreveport for a year i went to night law school and got my degree and so that's what helped that helped immensely with the public service commission uh with the uh the uh, uh, legislature. It helped me every place I had to go and speak about something about arc law. The law degree helped me. Helped me you know, well. almost to be a politician, you had to have a law degree it back helped. then. It used to be a very reputable uh, profession. I don't know that it's so reputable anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just have some bad apples or had some. So how long was it before you decided after leaving arc going into the pr- law profession, how long was it before you said, you know, I think I'm going to try politics? Well, I actually been involved in politics during my Arkley years. You had to be. You had to get along with the legislature. You had to get along with the sitting governor uh, and senators. Er, I mean, it's United States senators and congressmen. So I had a good base of friendships there uh, that I always knew that when I wanted to do something else, I would run for, for governor. Never wanted to be anything else. Would not have run for anything that took me to Washington. Would not have run for a state senator and anything else. And the people would either elect me or not. Uh, if uh, for the governorship. Well, you had children, didn't you? I did. And uh, how old were they? Probably about then. Uh, oldest one at the time was about uh, 16, 17. Yeah, that's yep. not a good time to be the moving them. It had been terrible. It would have been mm. terrible. But what I did was uh, I, I worked hard at ARCLA during the day, but I also did a lot of hard work uh, in the other part of the day when I wasn't at ARCLA and at night. I did a lot of fundraising for a lot of good causes. Uh, my wife was very good at that and helped me in different uh, from different levels of that. We tied in with various uh, groups that are awfully good, and later in life it became uh, Easter Seals uh, and Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame and something like that I, I've raised a lot of money for. But we did that sort of thing in addition to our other. So it was very natural for me. At the, I left Arkla December 31st of 1984, joined the law firm the next day or two days later, uh, and then I started Don't building. want to rest. Started building toward uh, running for governor. I mean, that was on my mind. The lawyers did when I went into the firm. Didn't start openly, just started making speeches around the state, started continuing to work for good causes, doing things that would just get my name a little more out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what I did. Well, it's out there. Until the time I ran in 1990. Your name's two easy ones to run against. That was Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Bill Clinton and Jim Guy Tucker, two of the best ever in the state of Arkansas and really among the best in the country. So the timing was not right. And, you know, when you think about it, today is exactly the opposite of what it was back then. Back then, the Democrats owned everything. They owned just about every office. Uh, now the Republicans own that. You had that turnaround, and I think Asa and I contributed to the turnaround because after we both got beaten uh, in 1990, we decided to grow a Republican Party in Arkansas. It had kind of fallen back. So let's let's tell the listeners, though, that you were a Democrat. That's right. And when you decided that you wanted to run for the governorship, the slot was filled by Bill Clinton. Well, that wasn't the reason, though. Let me tell you, one went a little further back than that. I actually started converting when Ronald Reagan ran for president. So that had to be 1980. 
Uh, Jimmy Carter had gotten the country in bad shape. I just felt we had to have a change, and I thought Reagan was a great answer to it. And I started changing at that time. I never had to say what I, what I really was. The only time I'd ever declared what I was was when I was about 21, 22 years old and ran for uh, for a president of the Young Democrats. Uh-huh. Uh, but that, that didn't make any difference. The real decision making. Were you the president of the Young Democrats? No, we got beaten. I got huh. beaten in a deal involving Jim McDougal and Sam Boyce. Oh, Lord, and, all uh, those names. And I Man, say, you I say, are in everywhere. Let me correct the Young Democrats. It's actually State Democrat Party at the time. Oh, yes. But right. I was in my early 20s. <clears throat> From that time forward, the only time I ever had to raise my head about what party I was in was when I ran for office. It had nothing to do with being afraid of Clinton because I knew that I'd have to face him either directly oh. or indirectly. Yeah. So that didn't, that didn't make my, my mind up. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't have beat him in the primary. He was already the governor. He was going to run again. So now you've changed parties, and you're going to run again. Who who did you run against? Donald Robinson. But you may not remember, I didn't I didn't have Clinton face me. When I announced for governor, Clinton had said he wasn't running. He had already announced he would not be running for governor. Really? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I got in, but that didn't have a thing to do with my getting out. didn't have anything. I felt that he would run. His reason for coming back is he wanted to save the state from Tommy Robinson. That was the reason he <laughs> announced that he'd go again as a Democrat. And well, course, for people that don't know, Tommy Robinson was the Donald Trump of Arkansas. Wouldn't you say he was gun-toting, straight-shooting, straight-talking? I mean, for people that don't remember who Tommy Robinson is, do you think that's a pretty good description of kind of – people loved him. He was so popular. He really was. And, you know, that's who I had to face. And so I had to announce against yeah. the guy who had been announced by the president in the, in the, uh, the Rose Garden that he's going to come back here and run for governor of Arkansas. So that's what I had to face when I went into the Republican primary. So I don't know that I, I went up to anybody. I really would have been better staying on the Democrat side. But yeah, would have been. But where I belong was Republican. That's what okay. my thoughts were. That's what where my heart was, and that's what I did. So how did you beat Tommy Robinson, who was so hugely popular? I mean, I was a. I, I remember my dad loved him. People offer different ideas on it. Some will say, "Well, I picked a lot of Democrat votes up." I don't think I picked up any Democrats. They stayed over in their own primary. I think I beat me on the basis of getting in and working hard. I think that a lot of people didn't know Tommy as well as he is known here in Pulaski County. Oh. And I beat him out in the state. Uh, and I still beat him here in this county, too. Mm-hmm. But it was a close race. We ran a good race, four or five points difference. And uh, I think I beat him maybe 54 to 46. I just realized it's we have talked for 45 minutes. We've got so much to cover. I had no idea that I, I just looked at the clock. We've got to get going here. I'm sorry. I probably kept you talking on something. No, it's just fascinating. I could talk to you for two hours. So, okay, you, Bill Clinton, you, uh, you lost to Bill Clinton. Then you, then Bill Clinton gets elected president. He resigns from being governor. Uh, Jim Got Tucker, I think, is the attorney general. No, maybe. he's lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor, that's right. And he gets into he becomes the governor. You decide to run again. Well, I made up my mind to run. I didn't have intentions of running at that time. But things had shaped up where it's very clear from the outside special counsel that Jim Guy was going to be indicted. I mean, I had no question, and, and that was just the way it was going to be because of what uh, what they had been pegged with. Uh, and I said at the time, that's why I was running. You I knew? Did, I, oh, yeah. I did not want to have run the first time and fought somebody like Clinton and come back and let somebody else come in and inherit an office that was going to be vacated. And had they stuck with that prosecutor at that time, Jim Guy would have had to, been, had to leave the office earlier than he did. They changed special prosecutors. That guy came in and started it over from zero. Uh-huh. And then uh, Tucker, of course, was reelected easily. And Tucker then was faced uh, having to leave the office, which happened. 
you should have run for lieutenant governor on the Democratic Party. No, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have done it for anything because a good friend of mine was running over on the other side, and that was uh, Mike Huckabee. Mike ah. was running for lieutenant governor as a Republican, and a good friend of mine. I mean, we uh, have been years, I'd backed him strongly. And, and Who did him become the, the governor after Jim Guy? Uh, um, Mike Huckabee did. Is See, that when, right? When, I, was when, he the lieutenant governor? Uh, so was, when Jim Guy resigned, he, w- he became? When he resigned, they had a special election. Mike Huckabee took on a state senator from down here at Benton, and he won the, the election, and then Huckabee did not lose the election from then on. He won the governorship and, and rewon it. Good and, and you were appointed, and, and, and uh, Huckabee appointed you to the Arkansas Game and Fish? He, he appointed me to the Game and Fish, and I think he may have given me my first appointment to uh, uh, the Board of Higher Education. I was on both, and, and I know that I was appointed through the years by various ones. So but even Huckabee's though you weren't good. elected, you were appointed to lots of positions. I was very fortunate. I had good friends as governors and good friends. You were good. recently by Asa Hutchinson appointed yeah, to something. He put me on the board of uh, the University of Arkansas. So one of your things that I think is really interesting since you're a utility executive in the gas and oil business is you want to raise the uh, severance tax for uh, natural gas. And we did. You may remember I... Uh, I started it off, and Mike B came in and said, "Yes, we need to increase it." We, I backed him, and uh, what he is proposing, we got it through. The second time was several years later, and I felt felt we needed another one, and we did. To be truthful, back at the time, because money was rolling through the tills out of the gas over here in Arkansas, and it you talking of, about fracking? Yeah, fracking had developed the gas, and most of it was being transported out of the state and ruining the highways. That's just exactly right. So anyhow, I felt we should have. Uh, BB did not favor that. Uh, the oil and gas people were totally against it. We got beat in that, but it still helped run. Now, looking back with 2020 hindsight, uh, it was good that we didn't get that increase. Why? Well, because the oil and gas business fell on its uh, tail. Oh, they yeah. really, they had hard times, and they're really having hard times today, to be truthful. Are we still fracking? Uh, there's still fracking going on. Not the way it was. A lot of oil and gas has been cut back. A lot of them aren't drilling. Uh, it's because they can't afford to for the money they get for it. Uh, so it's a, they're on hard times. And I guess if I had to say, was it best that we didn't win that one, I'd say yes. because we. So severance tax, when I was looking at this, I had to go look up why is it called a severance tax. And it's because it's severed from the earth. That's exactly right. That's a pay, tax you pay to pay to take that out of the earth. To sever it from the earth. Yeah. And not to come back. I think that's really interesting. I never knew that what was why it was called yeah. that. Very so, important. And on my replacement cost pricing on natural gas for, for mm-hmm. the large business, mm-hmm. uh, I started off with the idea of replacement cost as a reason to look at driving up the other. That you had to start moving that price up or you'd sell all your your uh, your gas that you had. You'd take everything that you had that was natural like that and it would be gone when you woke up and wanted to yeah. raise the price. Did you ever did, did I read that you'd considered running for the governorship in like 2014 or something? I did not. Uh, anybody said that was just speculating. No, I had no intention. I ran two times. That was all I'd ever run. That's the only thing I'd ever run for. So I uh, stuck with my plan. Uh, uh, I thought this was pretty admirable of you. The Game and Fish Commission, you opposed the attempts to exempt itself. They wanted to exempt themselves from the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act right. on fiscal matters. You're on the commission, the Game and Fish Commission. And you're not going along with the boys. Are you in trouble for that? Not really. In fact, we had a great team together on that. And I don't even remember how that happened, but usually we were together. You didn't see many battles. And uh, I just felt strongly about freedom of information. I felt it existed for a reason. It was developed for a reason. It should continue existing from now into the future.
So I want to tell everybody that you're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with the smart, esteemed politician and counselor, Mr. Sheffield Nelson. You also brought the Junior Achievement Organization here in 1978. I believe you were probably at Arkley at the time. You're right. I was still there because I didn't leave uh, until 84. I did bring it into the state. We had some great people back at uh, Jerry Jones, Mac McClarty, Walter Hussman. Uh, You can go down the list of business people in central Arkansas. So we started with a a great board, and that board helped it develop. We were able to fund it and get it operating. And that's where most things fail is on the front end. We didn't let it fail, and it's still going strong today. Why did you pick the Junior Achievement Organization? I thought it was the one thing lacking. I know I had no business background at at all coming out of high school. Uh, Very little was available in college unless you went specifically for that. I felt that high school students needed to be uh, have the opportunity to address business and business concepts at a young age because then it would uh, encourage more of them to go into business, and that's what we need is mm-hmm. more people going out and becoming entrepreneurs and helping build the state of Arkansas. It's just done a wonderful job, by the way, and a lot of people come up to me today and say, I was in your first group of junior <laughs> achievers, and, and you know, that's going back a long way, but they remember it, and they, they all say it applied to their lives, and it helped them. And. If you wanted to get involved with it today, how would somebody do, go about doing that? Well, they can call me because I'm still involved. I help them raise money every year and try to help them go stay down a, a good, strong path. Uh, and they have a Junior Achievement Central office here in Little Rock. They'll call me. I'll give them the number. I introduce do, them to the people. What and do you do? What well, do they do? What does a volunteer do? Well, a volunteer right now would help them uh, build the program. Now, in school, the young ones need to know to try to uh, participate in Junior Achievement, but I think all of them are. I, I hear that they just load the classes up in school. So what we have... You mean been, there's actually a class in school? That, that's how junior achievement works. It goes into the high schools, and te- and really some in lower than that. But the real... They meaningful- probably think it's an easy A. Let's well, just be well, honest. But believe it or not, I don't even think they get a grade on it. I think it's oh. a class that they go... If they do, it, it's not an easy one, I can tell you. They, they go to try to get a background in business enough to see if that's something they have an interest in. And it's uh, we've developed it now... Uh, the ones that came in after us built it. We were Central Arkansas strong. It now goes all over through Northwest Arkansas and some in other places. It's a well-organized, big organization. Do they learn about fin- about financial statements? They learn general concept of business. They learn about fi- they don't go into to the financial statements so much. But they learn what you got to have to run a business, how you develop it, how you handle your cost, and then how to do a business them. plan. Exactly. They they learn all these good things, and depending on how good a teacher they have, they have some very good instructors tied up in the school system. So I know you, we we've talked all day about how hardworking and smart you are, and you've absolutely shown shown us that. Uh, so uh, I know you've got an opinion about this. What's Arkansas doing right, and what could Arkansas improve on right now? My opinion is that Asa Hutchinson is one of the best governors we've had. And I Boy, think, he sure did good with COVID, didn't he? I think he? he's driving us right down the road right. Mm-hmm. He did it with COVID, and he's staying right on top of it. It's something he's spent an immense amount of time with. I think he's done a great job for the state. But I think he's been an equally good governor if you take that out of the equation. I think he's handled virtually everything about as well as a governor can handle. I'm real pleased for him and proud of him. I'm just pleased that he's had the chance to show Arkansas five years now and has three more years to show him what he can do. Is Sarah Huckabee going to run next year? I don't next know. Time? I, I think Sarah will look at it. Uh, uh, you know, she's got the attorney general uh, mm-hmm. uh, who will look at it very uh, carefully. He, mm-hmm. She's got the lieutenant governor who will look at it very carefully. I Sounds think, just like a politician, doesn't I, he? I think in theory that all three of them could be in the race. I do think if they're really, really smart, they'll 
make some kind of deal to get one run for something else and get it down to two and have a, a good full-fledged fight because you'd have a good governor any of those three. I'm excited to see what that race is going to be like. Me too. I think it would be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Gosh, I've enjoyed talking to you. You and I could talk a long time. I think we have a lot to say. And your gift for coming on is a desk set of the U.S. flag and the Arkansas flag. Do you have a desk set? I, I going to go right behind my seat on my desk behind me. I bet you don't even have one, do you? I'm I don't. A, I'm amazed you how many people. Care of me. <laughs> I've had a, an Arkansas flag. I've had a U.S. flag. We Probably fly, a big one. We, yeah, we fly the U.S. flag at our home and on holidays and all that. But no, I've never had anything that will be right behind me. And that will be. Yep, you'll like it. Terry, uh, thank you. I, I've enjoyed this. I, I look forward you. to getting to visit with you, and I admire your background, and thank you've been a great entrepreneur. Thank you. Glad thank that you very much. Gray, who's coming up next week? We've got kind of a cool guest next week, too. We do. Actress and, can I say movie star? Yeah, you sure. can. Movie star, Joey Lauren Adams. She'll yeah. be on yeah. next week. I've yeah. been trying to get her on for two years. She's uh, <laughs> sheltering in place in Arkansas right now, and so because she's from North Little Rock, and so she'll be here next week. I'm really excited about that. To our listeners, I'd like to say in closing, thank you for spending time with us. We hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y, at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast wherever you'd like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream. 